Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions. By learning the stories of heroic brothers and sisters from the past, today the hero of the faith that we're going to study is Athanasius, one of the great figures in church history, but could be that many of you that are listening to me today have never heard about him. Before I talk about Athanasius, let's just set all of this in context. I want to talk about the incredible gospel advance over 20 centuries and the obstacles that there have been to that mighty gospel advance. The gospel has advanced from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That was what Jesus commanded, and that's what's been happening for 20 centuries. That was Acts 1.8. The church itself started 120 believers in the upper room, and they were small, fearful, barely noticed. In John 20, the day of the resurrection, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. But the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Then a week later, even after they'd had numerous encounters with the resurrected Jesus, they're still in the upper room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, and the church poured forth into the streets of Jerusalem, and the gospel has been running like a river ever since. And that's exciting. But then as we think about the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem, that small number of people in the upper room, to the ends of the earth, there have been incredible obstacles that the gospel has had to overcome every step of the way. And I believe when we get to heaven and we look back over the 2,000 years of gospel advance and beyond, how many in the end years there will be when redemptive history is finally brought to an end, but we're going to study in detail all of the obstacles that the church, that the gospel, has overcome. The church has had to struggle with sin within and opposition without. Start with the fact that every Christian is a sinner, battling the weakness of the internal sin nature, the flesh. And the church is made up of sinners that uh, often squabble with each other and are contentious with each other. Uh, the surrounding world is hostile to the pure faith of the gospel. Individuals, even beloved family members, oppose Christ so that a person's enemies would be the members of their own household, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, Jesus said. Neighbors and members of their own community would be opposing them, hating the message of holiness and the need to repent or perish. Local governments hated them and opposed them, uh, declaring uh, where it started in the Jewish community that if anyone asserted that Jesus was the Messiah, they would be evicted from the synagogue. They could therefore no longer really make a living. They couldn't be part of Jewish culture and society. Then as the gospel moved out into the Gentile world, local authorities only noticed when Christianity, it seems, started a disturbance. Usually Christianity didn't start it, but the opposition did. Uh, the enemies of Christ would kick up a riot for one reason or another. And then as more and more people were converted, the old idolatrous religious system was being challenged, and idol makers and pagan priests and prostitutes lost businesses and they began to make trouble for the Christians. Then, eventually, the machinery of the Roman Empire started to move against it, and Christianity became an illegal religion. Over the centuries, pagan leaders and government, governors and kings would, would replay these same themes. They would arrest Christians, they would abuse them, they would imprison them, and ultimately, in many cases, kill them, making them martyrs. 
Now certainly these obstacles to the spread of the gospel were imposing and terrifying. There were also physical obstacles to taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Vast oceans that had to be crossed. Burning deserts that had to be crossed. Soaring jagged mountain ranges that had to be crossed. Swollen rivers and dark forests. Steamy jungles filled with ravenous beasts and poisonous snakes and tropical fevers. All of these had to be dealt with, crossed, or in some sense overcome to take the gospel to the people on the other side. All of these obstacles have been a major threat, have been major threats to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But let me say this, none of these obstacles has been as dangerous and difficult as false doctrine. False doctrine is the greatest single threat to the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. We need to fight for right doctrine. Right doctrine saves souls. As Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. False doctrine damns souls eternally. Satan has sown in every generation false teachers in the church, even from the very beginning, seeking to pervert the true gospel message. In the New Testament days, the Judaizers were a plain example of this. Jewish people who claimed to be Christians but were actually teaching a false gospel of works. Other doctrinal threats endangered the life of the church. Legalism on the one side, license on the other. Mixing human philosophies with divine truth. Gnosticism, denial of the bodily resurrection, worship of angels, and so on. So therefore, Jude wrote in verse 3, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Now, to contend for the faith is to fight for right doctrine. And so we come to this hero of the faith, Athanasius, and his battle against Arianism. Now, when we talk about Arianism, what do we mean? Well, it was a false teaching about the person of Jesus Christ. The basic concept of Arianism is that Jesus, the Son of God, is actually God's first and greatest creature or created being, not actually God himself. The slogan of Arianism was, there was when he was not or more fully, there was a time that he did not yet exist. In other words, he's a created being. God made Christ as a creature, as a created being, and Christ is therefore not the creator God. But as hard as it is to believe, there was a time in which that same doctrine was the dominant teaching in the organized Christian hierarchy and almost won the day. But God raised up one man in particular to fight this false doctrine and to defend the true gospel centered on the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the incarnate Son of God, this one person that God raised up to fight this false doctrine was Athanasius. So let's set Athanasius in historical context. We start with the conversion of Constantine and the rise of the imperial church. As we mentioned, the gospel advanced for three centuries against constant opposition from the Roman Empire sometimes either, even through bloody persecutions and overtly hostile emperors. The final organized empire-wide persecution occurred under the Roman emperor Diocletian in the year 309. 
and then was carried on after his death by his success, successor, Galerius. But Galerius found that no matter how many Christians he killed or purged from his legions, more and more people were becoming Christians. He couldn't stop it. So on his deathbed in the year 311, Galerius ordered an edict of toleration. It was kind of provisional, but it was a step in the right direction. The very next year, in the spring of 312, a young general named Constantine led his army across the Alps into Italy to seize the throne of the empire from his rival, Maxentius. As he approached the city of Rome at the Milvian Bridge, Constantine had a dream in which he saw the cross of Christ in the sky and heard the words, In this sign, conquer. According to the historian Eusebius, Constantine made a standard for the battle in response to this vision, a spear overlaid with gold with a cross formed by a transverse bar and wreath of gold enclosed, enclosing a monogram with the letters Chi and Rho for the name of Christ. Constantine won the battle and gained the power he sought in Rome. He confirmed the edict of toleration for Christianity with his co-regent Licinius at Milan. The Edict of Milan in the year 313 finally and forever ended all state-sponsored persecution of Christianity. Now, Constantine himself continued to practice both Christianity and aspects of paganism, but he became more and more openly embracing of the Christian faith. His court became more and more Christianized, thus beginning the era of the imperial church. This was a combination of the power of the Roman emperor and the gospel of Christ. And this is a vital backdrop to the story of Athanasius. Now, Arianism was named for a pastor named Arius, a pastor in Alexandria named Arius, who sometime around the year 318 began preaching his views. There was when he was not was the slogan Arius and his followers adopted. In other words, there was a time that the Son of God did not exist. Because of Arius' wildly popular appeal, his winsome popularity, and his clever tactic of putting his doctrine into easy-to-remember songs sung by dock workers unloading ships and schoolchildren in their classes, his views spread rapidly. Furthermore, with the large, sudden influx of half-converted pagans into the church now that Christianity was in official favor with the Roman Emperor Constantine, Arianism was more, more readily accorded with their basic polytheistic mindset. If you think about it, uh, Arianism is essentially polytheism. You have more than one god. And that made sense. People understood that. They were, the pagans were used to being polytheistic. The mysteries of the Trinity and of the incarnation of God the Son are extremely difficult to conceive of and to articulate. But if Arianism had not been defeated, the gospel itself would have been lost. There are modern-day attacks on the incarnation. Frankly, Arianism is the central heresy of the modern cult known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is not Jehovah God, but a creation of Jehovah. He is God with a little g, not God with a capital G. So, as I've said, Jehovah's Witnesses are polytheists. They believe in more than one God. There are presently over 8 million Jehovah's Witnesses spreading their false gospel in 240 countries worldwide. As I said, there was a moment in history 
in which Arianism was the dominant theology of the Christian church. So it almost became the Watchtower Society back in the fourth century. But there are others that attack the doctrine of the Incarnation. Mormon missionaries spread a concept of God and of Christ that is essentially polytheistic. The original Mormon false teacher, Joseph Smith, taught of Christ and of God, what we are, he once was, what he is, we may become. So that's the same kind of, of concept of the Incarnation. And Muslims have a respect for Jesus as a sinless and pure prophet of God, but they stumble on the doctrine of the Incarnation. Liberal thinkers like Thomas Jefferson embrace the so-called pure morals of Jesus of Nazareth, but they absolutely deny his deity. So Christians uh, must be armed with the truth today. Christian gospel workers all over the world are armed with clear language and careful conceptions of the Trinity and of the incarnation of the Son of God, largely in part because of the steadfast holy courage of this man, Athanasius. The overwhelming majority of these modern-day laborers for the gospel as they strive to bring their unsaved neighbors to confess rightly Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father have never heard of Athanasius. They're totally ignorant of the debt that they owe him, but in heaven they will meet him and God will reveal the dimensions and details of Athanasius' story. And in heaven we will join Athanasius in bending our knees to Jesus Christ as truly God, not worshiping many gods, but worshiping one God in three persons. So that's all by way of introduction. Let's get to the story of Athanasius himself. Athanasius was born in Alexandria, Egypt in the year AD 298. He was an Egyptian by birth and a Greek by education. His parents were wealthy and of good standing in society. Athanasius was small in stature his whole life. He was a short man. He lived his boyhood years during the final persecution of the church in Egypt by Rome, so he had seen actual martyrs go to their deaths. During his youth, he became acquainted with the Alexandrian Christians who had fled out into the desert to escape persecution, but then who chose to remain out in the desert after the danger had passed. The desert-dwelling monks, of whom the greatest was Anthony, uh, set a pattern for, uh, for monasteries and for, and for desert-dwelling holy uh, people, men and women, for centuries to come. Athanasius was Anthony's attendant for a long time out in the desert, and Anthony made a profound impact on the young boy Athanasius. Athanasius had the heart of a desert-dwelling ascetic all his life. These men lived lives of solitude, celibacy, poverty, prayer, fasting, and service to the poor and needy. Their combination of strong commitment to sound biblical doctrine, to personal holiness, and to service to others made a powerful impact on Athanasius, and he sought to live the rest of his life in that pattern while maintaining his own calling in the city. There was a profound friendship between these two great men of God, Anthony and Athanasius. Later on, Athanasius wrote a biography of Anthony, which the next century fell into the hands of the as-yet-unconverted Augustine and was instrumental in Augustine's conversion. The Roman persecution ended, as I said, with the Edict of Milan in the year 313, 
Six years later, Arius, the Alexandrian pastor, began teaching his doctrine there was when he was not, around the year 319. Now, around the year 318, Athanasius wrote his first book, Contra Gentes, which is against the heathen, refuting contemporary paganism. He wrote his second and greatest book on the incarnation of the word around the same time. Athanasius was very humble about the complexities of incarnation theology, of the theology of the incarnation. And this is what he said, quote, The more I desired to write and forced myself to understand the divinity of the word, Christ, so much more did the knowledge thereof withdraw itself from me. And in proportion, as I thought I had apprehended it, so much more I perceived myself to fail in doing so. Moreover, also, I was unable to express in writing even what I seemed myself to understand. And that which I wrote was unequal to the imperfect shadow of the truth that existed in my conception. Let me summarize all of that. This is a very deep, complex subject, hard to understand and very difficult to capture in words. That's what he's saying. Rephrasing another image from Athanasius, trying to comprehend the infinite dimensions of the mystery of the incarnation of Christ is like sitting on a cliff overlooking the ocean as it pounds the coastline as far as the eye can see. From our lofty perch, we can see a mile to the left and a mile to the right. And everywhere we look, wave upon wave of surf is rolling in and crashing with great plumes of spray on the beach below. We cannot begin to comprehend a single wave completely. And even if we did, there are countless more waves crashing further up the coast that we've never even tried to study. And the ocean itself stretches as far as the eye can see to the horizon, ready to supply an endless series of waves to overwhelm our mind and senses. So is the glory of God become man. Infinitely complex subject. That's what Athanasius gave us. Athanasius became a deacon and a right-hand man to Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria. When the theological battle against Arianism threatened to rip Constantine's vision of a Roman Empire united in Christ, Constantine called the Great Council of Nicaea in the year 325. Over 300 bishops attended, including Alexander, with Athanasius helping him. Arianism was soundly defeated at the Council of Nicaea. And the Nicene Creed is still standing today as the pattern of orthodoxy for Christians around the world. The Nicene Creed says this, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made in heaven and on earth, who for us men and our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered and the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and from thence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Ghost. And those who say there was a time when he was not and he was not before he was made and he was made out of nothing or out of another substance or thing or 
the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So that's the Council of Nicaea. That's the Nicene Creed. The central assertion is being of one substance with the Father. The denials woven through the Nicene Creed eliminate all articulations of Arianism. Now, Arianism lost. It was soundly defeated at the Council of Nicaea. Every bishop but two assented to this statement, and those two were sent into exile. But as it turned out, the battle for Orthodox Christology, the doctrine of Christ, was just beginning. Alexander, the Bishop of Alexandria, died in the year 328, and Athanasius took his place as the Bishop of Alexandria. The unholy mixture of church and state in the Roman Empire played a major role in the multifaceted battle that followed his assuming that role. For Athanasius was forced into exile five times for uncompromisingly and courageously upholding every bit of the Nicene Creed. He was sent into exile for that. Many of the bishops that signed off on the Nicene Creed were not willing to use that creed to declare anyone a heretic. Athanasius knew that the very existence of the church was at stake. He knew that to yield on this point was to lose the gospel entirely. Athanasius's ardency on this issue began to irritate many people including the Emperor Constantine himself, who in the year 331 summoned, summoned Athanasius to face charges that his enemies had trumped up. His first exile occurred five years later when his enemies bribed a fellow bishop into hiding and accused Athanasius of murdering him. Even when Athanasius was able to produce this man as a witness at his own trial, his enemies didn't give up. They just moved to another tack and accused him of trying to starve Constantine's capital city by preventing wheat shipments from leaving Alexandria. Constantine had had enough. He cared more for peace and unity in his empire than the truth of Christology. He banished Athanasius to a small place called Treveri in modern-day Luxembourg on February 8, 336. The next four exiles, the first from 339 to 346, the second from 356 to 362, and then from 362 to 364, and then finally from 365 to 366, all involved varieties of imperial politics, scurrilous lies by his opponents, staunch opposition from at least two emperors, Julian the Apostate and Valens, who was an ardent Arian, uh, also armed soldiers entering his church while he preached, and many other forms of suffering. His third exile, 356 to 362, was the most dangerous of them all, but also his greatest spiritual triumph. Athanasius' connection with the desert-dwelling monks saved his life during his third exile. The circumstances of that exile were perilous. After the death of Constantine in the year 337, the Roman Empire was divided among his three sons. Constantius ruled the east from Constantinople. Constans ruled Italy and Illyricum, modern-day, uh, I guess, uh, the Slavic countries like Yugoslavia, and then Constantine II ruled Gaul and Africa. Constans supported Athanasius ardently, even threatening Constantius with war if he did not reinstate Athanasius from his second exile. 
But when Constans was murdered on January 18th, the year 350, Athanasius's political protection was gone. Constantius, the Arian, was free to attack Athanasius and his Nicene theology, and he sent his soldiers to Alexandria to seize him. On the night of February 8, 356, Athanasius had gathered his loyal church for a worship and prayer service. Constantius's soldiers surrounded the church and then broke in the doors. Athanasius did not give way to fear, but calmly took his seat on the bishop's throne and conducted the prayer service. Despite his people begging for him to escape, Athanasius would not leave until all the people were safe. Then a band of loyal and courageous monks grabbed Athanasius in the confusion and managed to smuggle him out of the building. For the next six years and 14 days, Athanasius completely disappeared from view. He was protected out in the desert by the loyal, holy hermits, none of whom betrayed him either from fear of death or promised reward. Constantius's henchmen searched everywhere for Athanasius, but the people's loyalty to him was unswerving, despite the fact that the soldiers committed some of the most horrible atrocities in the name of the Arian emperor. During those six years, Athanasius wrote some more of his most influential writings on the deity of Christ. He was especially sharp in rejecting any mediating position on Christology, such as that Christ was similar to the Father, something like that. Athanasius saw more clearly than any person alive at that time, or perhaps since, this one truth, nothing less than belief in the full deity of Christ was essential to the salvation of human souls. At the lowest point of this struggle, Athanasius was opposed by almost every bishop in the worldwide church, most of whom had compromised in order to retain favor with the Roman emperor, resulting in increased power, wealth, and privilege as opposed to certain exiles. So these bishops would go in for money, wealth, and power rather than truth. This is why the famous phrase, Athanasius contra mundum, that is Athanasius against the world, came about. Athanasius was standing against the entire world's opinion. But Athanasius was willing to say with Paul in Romans 3, 4, let God be true, though every man a liar. And it was certainly like it was in the days of Elijah when he said, I alone am left and was told, by God, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God would uphold the truth, even if it seemed like everyone on earth had abandoned it. Yet we know none of the 7,000 that did not bow the knee to Baal in Elijah's time, but we still remember bold Elijah, who stood alone on Mount Carmel for the glory of God. And so it was with those days as well. We remember this solitary hero, Athanasius, who cared nothing for earthly applause nothing for power or riches. He stood for doctrinal precision on the central person of the gospel and protected the meaning of the saving statement, Jesus is Lord, for the centuries that would follow. Now, why does this matter? Well, it's essential to the gospel. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, the, the statement, Jesus is Lord, means Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what it means. And Jesus himself said to his enemies in John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. That's what the Greek says. Many translations put, I am the one I claim to be or something like that. It just says, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. 
That is the strongest anti-Jehovah's Witness verse you'll ever find. You have to believe Jesus is the I Am. At the end of that same chapter, John 8, 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I Am. In other words, I Am God. All right, how did Athanasius write? What were some of his words? Well, this is from his work on the incarnation of the Word. This is what Athanasius said, quote, We will begin then with the creation of the world and with God its maker, for the first fact you must grasp is this. The renewal of creation has been worked by the selfsame Word who made it in the beginning. Isn't that powerful? In other words, all things were made through the Word, through Jesus, and all things are being recreated or remade through the same Word, Jesus. Again, Athanasius wrote, It was our sorry case that caused the Word to come down, our transgression that called out His love for us, so that he made haste to help us and to appear among us. It is we who were the cause of his taking human form, and for our salvation, that in his great love he was both born and manifested in a human body. Again, he wrote these words, He, the Mighty One, the Artificer of all, himself prepared his own body in the Virgin as a temple for himself, and then he took it as his very own as the instrument through which he was known and in which he dwelt. In other words, Athanasius said, he made his own body inside Mary's womb. Even on the cross, Athanasius said, he did not try to hide himself from sight. Rather, he made all creation witness to the presence of its maker. And again, Athanasius said this, death has become like a tyrant who has been completely conquered by the legitimate monarch, bound hand and foot, the passers-by sneer at him, hitting him and abusing him, no longer afraid of his cruelty and rage because the king who has conquered him. So has death been conquered and branded for what it is by the Savior on the cross. Death is bound hand and foot, and all who are in Christ trample it as they pass and as witness to him deride it, scoffing and saying, O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? Isn't that good stuff? The idea of death being a deposed tyrant now in chains and the populace able to walk by unafraid. What kind of man was uh, Athanasius? Gregory of Nazianzus said of him, Gregory himself being a great man a generation later, of Athanasius, he grew rich in contemplation, rich in splendor of life, and combined them in wondrous sort by that golden bond which few can weave, using life as a guide for contemplation and contemplation as the seal of his life. In other words, Athanasius was a very powerful combination of deep, rich meditations theologically and a powerful, bold life lived for the glory of God. Uh, again, Gregory said this, he was sublime in action, lowly in mind, inaccessible in virtue, most accessible in relationship. In other words, you couldn't change his virtues, but he was very accessible as a friend. He was gentle, free from anger, sympathetic, sweet in words, sweeter in disposition. He was angelic in appearance, more angelic in mind, calm in rebuke, persuasive in praise, without spoiling the good effect of either by excess, but rebuking with the tenderness of a father, praising with the dignity of a ruler. In other words, he knew when to rebuke one of his disciples and when to praise one of his disciples, and he didn't do either one very much. 
but just uh, enough, like a, a loving father. His tenderness was not dissipated, nor his severity sour. For one, the one was reasonable, he was reasonably tender, and the other prudent, both truly wise. His disposition sufficed for the training of his spiritual children, with very little need of words, his words with very little need of the rod, and his moderate use of the rod with still less for the knife. In a good old age, he closed his life and was gathered to his fathers, the patriarchs and prophets and apostles and martyrs who contended for the truth. So Gregory of Nazianzus was saying this was an expert mentor and discipler of people. He knew how to bring people up in the faith, how to deal with them gently and lovingly. This is the kind of man that God raised up to protect the gospel at a key juncture in church history, a courageous and humble man who stood against the world in defense of the truth. So what does this mean for us today? Well, let us thank God for the defense of the truth. And let us be willing to stand firm in our day when the truth of the Bible is being attacked. Christianity is becoming ever more unpopular in American society in our day. I think about recently when Congress was opened by a bizarre prayer to the monotheistic God and Brahmin and whatever God there might be. That's the American Congress now. So the exclusivity of Christ will become more and more unpopular in American culture. We're going to have to sign off on the equal validity of all religions. Well, Athanasius would not do so. All religions ought to be freely practiced in American society, yes, but they're not equally valid. One of them is true, and all the rest are lies. And Athanasius would be willing to stand firm for that. The question is, are we? So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds your life and all your ways in His hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from His will. He orchestrates the rise and fall of mighty empires and the death of sparrows that no one ever sees. He has numbered the very hairs of your head, and all the days ordained for you were written in His book before one of them came to be. And He has gone ahead of you to prepare a specific set of good works for you to walk in, good works that are essential to His eternal kingdom. Just as your brothers and sisters in Christ live for His glory in their day, do the same in yours, by the power of the Spirit, for the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.